Conversations in Society. We talk racism, culture, politics and economics, the issues that matter to you. And thank you for joining us again for Conversations in Society. My name is Danielle and I'm joined here with my co-founder Gita Lal. And we also have an extremely special guest with us today uh, from BLM Stoke. It's Bex. Hi, Bex. Hi. Hi. Are you all right? <laughs> yes. Um, I'm so happy for you to join us today. We're talking about the policing bill, but before we even get into that, we just want to talk a little bit about Black Lives Matter Stoke uh, and the journey. Yeah, how did it how did it come about? So BLM for Stoke all started out after the excruciatingly horrible murder of George Floyd last year. I think across the UK we were seeing that we wanted to have solidarity with America and racial injustice that has been historically going on over there for hundreds of years and it hasn't been talked about enough. And I think it really highlighted the things that are wrong with this country, things that haven't been highlighted or talked about for a long time. It's been a long time coming. So I guess Stoke-on-Trent just wanted to show solidarity with the rest of the country and, well, the rest of the world in many ways. Um, For me personally, it was quite, I don't know what the word is, I guess cathartic to finally have a way to sort of voice my views and opinions and experiences with racism because before Black Lives Matter came along, I always felt like I was dismissed quite a lot or gaslighted or just not taken seriously about the things that I've experienced. So to finally have a way of sort of voicing those things has been really, really good for me. It's been great for my confidence. It's been great for my mental health. And just to feel validated is just it's so important. And I think that's one of the most important things about BLM. It's very validating for people of colour who've experienced so much and not been given the chance to talk about these things. Yeah, and I think it's um, really important that you highlighted that because I think you mentioned about it not being highlighted before, but I think um, I think you were probably more referring to the fact that it's been highlighted by individuals like yourself, but it's just not being recognised by the leaders of the country, the leaders of organisations. And um, uh, it's important for those listening as well to, to know that um, Black Lives Matter has been going on for a number of years. It's just it that sounds- last mm-hmm. year it, it kind of hit its kind of peak and really exploded globally yeah um, fortunate death so yeah but thank you for sharing that because i think a lot of us can resonate with that experience of we've been speaking about it for ages and being gaslit for ages and now finally it's crazy how those people who just weren't listening before all of a sudden they've now <laughs> they, got to listen to us they're, yeah. they're now listening and, and all of that it's really weird but yeah yeah i remember a few years ago in 2016 when blm first kicked off in America. I believe that was following the death of Is it Trayvon Martin? Trayvon Martin. That yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Um and I remember first hearing about it then and feeling quite oh, oh God, people are finally talking about this. But I remember feeling really shut down by people who were saying all lives matter and that just spouting out rhetoric that wasn't helpful at all. Mm-hmm. It just kinda added to the invalidation of people's experiences and it made me feel quite disheartened so I kind of you know I got into a few like oh like you know comment wars on Facebook as they go yeah and I just felt really quite disheartened and like you know what this is just too uncomfortable you know what Mm -hmm. I can really resonate with that because um 
kind of like we all said a second ago, this is not the first time, is it? Last year was not the first mm-hmm. time we've kind of seen this or we've seen where um, across countries um, there's been a massive concern over the racism due to something extremely, extremely um, sudden, well, sudden death, really. And um, I remember thinking back then, oh, okay, this is the time. Finally, racism is being put mm-hmm. back on the map. And then yeah. it's like a couple of months later, it's all forgotten about. We've moved on to the next thing. And that really frustrated me. But what this one did with the George Floyd, um, unfortunate George Floyd's death, it has literally carried the conversation on for how long? It's it, it's like the UK's really woken up or the people in the UK, well, the media actually decides to report on it more. Um, you know, leaderships are talking on it more and it's hitting parliament is crazy it's like wow okay finally but um i want to know more about what do you think blm's impact has had on the world do you think it's the because we saw it through social media we knew about what was going on because of social media we saw the video on social media then the hashtag in order to keep the conversation going but alongside that we saw the protest so what do you think were some of the key components why the world kind of unite what do you feel connected you the most I guess it was a bit of everything from everything that you've just listed there. Um, I think protesting in particular, like in this, like I'm just going to come out and say what our protest was about in Stoke-on-Trent because it was highlighted, it was helping us to highlight very locally specific issues with racism. Now, for us in Stoke-on-Trent last year, and I didn't, oh, I was, uh, pardon me, I wasn't aware of this myself. It was um, Sarah, who's another leader of BLM Stoke, and we're very good friends now and it's because this is another great thing about protesting you make friends through it because you've all had similar experiences mm. um anyway her and her brother were highlighting the fact that the then lord mayor jackie barnes had been making quite divisive and racist facebook posts following the death of george floyd um i'm not going to go into the examples because they are quite triggering and upsetting mm-hmm. and we basically said people like this should not be with these attitudes should not be representing our city it's it doesn't reflect our diverse community and it doesn't reflect our views of course it does um unfortunately does give a bit of a green light to people who are already quite entrenched in their racist views in this city because there is a big far right and racist presence in stoke-on-trent i'm not going to sugarcoat that but you know we thought we can't just let like let this happen and continue to let this person be in the position of power that she's in representing Stoke-on-Trent so we protested we had an email campaign um, eventually Jackie Barnes ended up having to have a hearing like an investigation about it because the council did recognize that what Amazing. she had done was very wrong and not not reflective of Stoke-on-Trent at all especially with such a growing diverse population so a result of that was um, the original goal and objective of us protesting was to have her kicked out and to step down, but that wasn't going to happen, unfortunately. But we got the next best. We got the next best thing, which was now her and everyone else in the council has got to have this equality and diversity training. Now to follow up from that as well, we also got in touch with the council and wanted like freedom of information acts because we wanted to know, you know, if the council are having this equality diversity training, is it going to be effective? It's not just going to be 
some guy pointing yeah. to a PowerPoint saying racism is bad, don't do racism and that be done with it because that would not be effective at all and all too often we do hear that a lot of race racism awareness mm. training is not very effective or tangible and so we got in touch yeah. and luckily we got a reply from the city director John Rouse who has said you know Black Lives Matter has forced us as an organization as the council to look at our processes and our culture um, me and Sarah actually had a meeting with him yesterday uh, because we started up a charity off the back of BLM called Sable, which is the Staffordshire Association for Black Park Equality. Um, we want to work with the community, we want to collaborate with other organisations, um, we want to advocate and support for people who have experienced racism or discrimination in workplaces, and we also want to host cultural events. So having that meeting with John Ralphs, it kind of not only validated our experience, but it gave us reassurance that the council are wanting to do the right thing by the diverse population of Stoke-on-Trent. And I just think that's why protesting is so important because we've got this result from it. And moving forward, we're going to move towards a more equal society where it's more inclusive and Stoke-on-Trent's community, especially the black community, is not going to feel as marginalised now. So. Yeah, I think it's amazing the work that you've done. I know that we've spoken about it previously about... Um, the kind of uh, the mayor and and all of that kind of stuff that happened because I heard about it um, having lived in Stoke and so mm-hmm. um, I know that you mentioned you didn't want to mention it in terms of the triggeringness um, but if we were able to give a trigger warning to say to people this is going to be quite um, harsh stuff for those who are listening for them to understand the gravity of how bad the scenario was mm-hmm. would you be able to share some of the stuff that they had said and and put out oh yeah absolutely um so one of the things was she was sharing posts from Britain First, which is notorious for sharing far-right, racist, derogatory and divisive stuff, and also fake, like just blatantly fake news. Now, there was this, this article published saying that a school had banned Help for Heroes wristbands in case it offended Muslim students. That was absolute, like, I want to say that was absolute rubbish. There was no basis for that. It was not based in fact at all, but she shared it anyway. Mm-hmm. And I find it hard to believe that she wasn't already aware that that's a very overtly racist group that she was sharing from. Uh, she also shared a post saying that she thought gollywogs should be brought back and that she didn't see a problem with them. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> um, yeah. Um, what was the other thing? And if you don't, if anyone's listening who doesn't know what that is, please re- research that yes, yourself. We're not going to go research. into the history of that. Yes. Just yeah. Google it, yeah. Um, yeah, and do some research of why that's a racist history that we don't want to be reliving. That this is the reason why it was important for your, um, for the organisation BLM Stoke to really combat this. So uh, thank you for sharing that. So in Stoke, um, we have had some recent protests, not just Stoke, um, across the country. We've had a Kill the Bill protest. What is the bill, the law that um, yourself and other organisations have been protesting against? So what we're protesting against is this, uh, this clause in the bill, which states that police would be given more powers to manage protesters and protests, which are deemed to be a bit of a nuisance. But the thing about that is it's quite subjective to say whether a protest is disruptive or noisy or what have you. Um, It also aims to redefine what can be classed as a nuisance, which I think is really quite dangerous um, because it means that even peaceful protests are at risk of being over-policed, which it not only like puts worry and fear into people, but it is also, I think, a waste of police time in the grand scheme of things. There's much much worse crimes than peaceful protesting. 
protests existed for a very long time and off the back of protests a lot of great things have happened i mean what you've done is an, a recent example and the fact that you have a charity on the back of it all of that happened as a causation of of your your activism um and the changes you've managed to see happen yeah i think even just the fact that the three of us are on this this uh, meeting and and having this talk on a podcast is just one example of the the freedoms we've got due to the history of activism in this country in internationally um so absolutely um i just wanted to clarify for those listening as well yeah um for those listening it's called the police crime sentencing and i think it's just Courts a sentence and crime bill and courts. Uh, courts bill that's it so there's four different elements and i think it's really important for people to recognize that there's actually it's not just about protest there's several elements and that bec- that adds to the controversy of this bill because of those several elements um it's like you can't if you're against one bit but you're for the other bits like what do you do um but yeah so how will the policing bill impact you and um other protesters or just other people within your community well what it does is it it puts me and other protesters and perhaps our allies as well at risk of having force used against them and of being prosecuted which you know i'm not going to sugarcoat that either it's going to have life long impacts on those people like you know being fined if you're someone who's from a working class or poor background and you're fined just for being part of a peaceful protest that could really damage you you know you could be evicted you could lose a hell of a lot of money um also being in prisons that has life changing consequences even if you were to just have a slap on the wrist kind of response from peaceful protesting you would still that would still be flagged up on your DBS check so if you apply to a job where you have to have a criminal record check it's going to impact that it's going to impact so in turn it impacts people's jobs you know it's just unfair to criminalize people for standing up for something that they want to see change uh, in addition to this because the prospect of having those sort of uh, consequences imposed it's going to put people off actually going to protests which damages the cause and it damages people's ability to mobilize and show solidarity for a cause you know even though every every single protest i've attended or um been involved in it's always been peaceful in many ways and you know educational as well i've learned so much just from going to protests stuff i wouldn't have known before now but if the police were given power to stop our protests if it was based on something subjective like say if it got too noisy or was disrupting the business it um it would just have really negative consequences for everyone involved just to quickly say it's important for people to note that whilst um it's whilst people are concerned about police powers um there was something that was said at the protest um the last Stoke protest which I thought was really interesting um was that the police it's not about the police protecting you the police reinforce the law regardless yeah. of what that law may be and i exactly. think that's the issue in the first place because you can't protect your you can't protect us as citizens if the law's telling you to do otherwise um, exactly. because you're a protector of the law not a protector of us and i thought that was really interesting because you see the police as a protector of the citizens but they're mm-hmm. actually a protector of the law which isn't yeah. always protecting citizens so yeah exactly. sorry d go ahead no i was just going to <clears throat> pretty much add that 
With this policing bill and the impact it could have on protests, it kind of takes away intersectionality from it as well, Mm -hmm. in the sense that people who are the most marginalized in terms of, uh, you know, their experiences, they are definitely, well, I would, if I knew that um, 10 years, I could end up 10 years behind bars if I had a child, but I also had something I wanted to say, I'm going to probably choose not to go because if I go to prison for 10 years what's going to happen to my child and same thing happens to other yeah exactly so it's gonna almost change the way protesting are done because protests are also a gateway for people who are unheard to be heard now they don't want to go so how are they heard especially if they don't feel like they trust um, some of the other routes to be heard such as speaking to your MP directly or the police directly this is their other way where do you stand on the policing bill then because it's quite obvious that you know there's things that are that you're against but as it has a lot more to do with it how do you feel about the policing bill as a whole overall um i'm quite sickened by it in many ways um just seeing the government attempting to take away what is a human right that is literally in the european convention of human rights under article 11 right to assembly the fact that they're trying to take that away or at least insidiously kind of, you know, push people down. It's just quite sickening and unnerving and unsettling, or at the very least, they're trying to make that right less accessible to us. And you just mentioned the European Convention on Human Rights. What is that? Is that law? Is that just an agreement? What What is that? Um, as far as I'm aware, it is, it's an overall overarching agreement between European countries that, you know, this is how people ought to be treated and this is like a guideline or at least a basis for the laws. Um, I highlighted that because I think it's important for people to note that when you've got these uh, agreements, because it is it is a, a, an agreement, um, it's not enforceable uh, to some extent um, because it's not law. And that's, that's what the issue becomes in these scenarios because whilst it goes against human rights, who's going to hold the country to account? Um, exactly. So, yeah. Well, yeah. protesters are going to hold the country to account. Exactly. And then yeah. they're trying to yeah. silence it, aren't they? So it's like, what? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to talk more about the policing bill, just bringing it back to the policing bill as a whole. So, as uh, Gita kind of um, explained earlier, it's about sentencing, it's about the courts, um, it also has to do with just police powers in general, um, crime. Is a lot in one bill, a lot, mm-hmm. yeah. and that's what makes it so complicated. Because while mm-hmm. there's some parts that people have agreed, so we watched the um, the second reading debate um, when it was in House of Commons, and one of the things I noticed is, of course, how MPs were saying, "Oh, th- this bit I agree with, but this bit I, d- I really don't agree with it," and you could see this battle whether to pass it or not on the basis of but I agree with someone I don't agree with others and I wanted to kind of ask you do you think this bill could be reformed or should it just be completely scrapped I've asked quite a few people this question because I love hearing the opinions of what do you think is it reformable could it be changed could it be altered or should it just completely go I think at the very least it needs to be reviewed or reformed in some way at the very least. I mean, uh, I learned today actually doing a bit of research for this is that uh, Pretty Patel had sort of put this 300-page document proposal together for the bill and it had only spent 
it has only been done a week before actually being debated for the first time in the House of Commons. So the fact that it's been rushed through Parliament like that is just astoundingly terrible on the part of our government. So that in and of itself just says to me, you know, we should cross some T's and dot some I's, guys. Come on should be better than this. It's important you highlight this as well. I'm just going to read something off the committee stage of the bill, which is where it's at now. Um, Bills fast-tracked through the House of Commons will receive less consideration. um, So that's basically, the bill was initially going to be fast-tracked through House of Commons. That's what Preeti Patel wanted. That's what uh, Mm -hmm. many MPs wanted. But because of Sisters Uncut, they've allowed it not to be fast-tracked. So it means that during the committee stage, it gets a lot more scrutiny. So absolutely, there was that whole, you could definitely feel there was a whole feel of like, we want to just get this done. It's going to get done right now. Yeah. Yeah. But protests change that. Uh, Exactly. That's the importance of it, is the protests change that. Oh, I just wanted to add a couple more things there to what you were saying. Um, The fact that nearly a quarter of a million people had signed the petition saying, do not let this pass in the matter of weeks speaks volumes about how opposed people are to this um absolutely and i just want to add like you know i'm all for the part about harsher sentences for serious crimes 100 percent. i mean historically i'm not sure if you're aware of this or i'm just going to sort of give you some statistics and such in a moment for me in particular i would love to see more serious crime more serious sentences on people who commit sexual offenses there's also Often, historically, the ratio of reported cases compared to actual convictions of sex offenders is outrageously disproportional. Mm. So in 2015, a government survey showed that the estimated number of victims of sexual offences are between 430,000 and 517,000. However, the number of those which actually lead to convictions was estimated at 5,620. Statistics like that are just really quite concerning to me and... So there does need to be quite systemic change in terms of that, in terms of, you know, proper justice for victims of sexual offences. But I also, I think it highlights the fact that crimes like that need to be taken more seriously and there needs to be less focus on annoying protesters. Do you know what I mean? When you compare those two things, it just seems like common sense to take one more seriously than the other and they shouldn't all be lumped in together. Yeah, I think it's important to note as well that in the last few years that the the percentage of rape cases that have been um, got to court and been successful have lessened as well. So whilst we're already at a low percentage in the first place, it's actually decreased. Um, as as women, I'm sure we can all kind of relate to the fact that we, we probably know at least one person um, that's been abused and hasn't been able to report it or have had these scenarios that have been highlighted more recently in the news as well, um, if not several people um so it's definitely something to talk about but just to highlight for those listening the reason why we're talking about this issue is because this bill highlights criminalizing rapists and sexual offenders as well um but on top of that we need to it needs to do more in terms of rehabilitation because if i had a family member who had been abused i don't want just that abuser just to go to prison i want that abuser to be rehabilitated Mm -hmm. because them going and um spending however many years is not necessarily going to get get them to come out and be a better citizen in society so yeah i totally agree before we move back on to the policing bill that domestic abuse uh bill is currently also going through uh the house of parliament and being considered as well so please do of course look on the parliament i think it's well yeah the parliament website to just you know keep up to date with what's going on um in regards to bills that are being passed as well um 
so we know that the the current policing powers they have you know stop and search you know they have powers when it comes to calls when someone who may have sh- struggled with mental health and maybe um being violent in the household at the time perhaps mm-hmm. The police have to deal with all of these various scenarios. Now that is so different. That's just a lot on one spectrum, right? Stop and search, mm-hmm. mental health, all these other things, surveillance. So we're increasing their powers with this bill. How do you feel about the, the existing powers of the police? I mean, I don't know if my facial expression just says it all, but um, no, I think police already abuse the power. They abuse their authority. Mm-hmm. It's very clear. I mean, even in the last few weeks where we've seen the brutality at protests, People literally just sitting there or at the Sarah Everard vigil, people are just paying their respects and police are coming in, hitting people and tackling them. And that's just with the powers they've got now. So I dread to think what would happen if they were given further powers to, you know, enforce by any means necessary. Mm. It's uh, it's quite scary. I just wanted to ask on that note as well, have you had any personal experiences of um, police uh, abusing their power or anyone that you know personally? Ironically, so in our Black Lives Matter protests in Stoke-on-Trent, we probably experience more police apathy than brutality, which is equally as damaging. So like, uh, we had a protest outside the Civic Centre outside Kings Hall in Stoke, and we had the speakers just outside the building, and we had the crowds, like our allies and whatnot, on the other side of the road, there's like a road in between us. And the police were, you know, we did our police presence there, because it was a protest. And they were meant to be keeping like count like counter protesters, by which I mean the far right and passers by. They were meant to be keeping people away from the crowd, not only for our safety because of the opposing opinions and the dichotomy, but also because of the COVID restrictions at the time. Because this was what July, I believe, or August. And uh, the police were mm. not only not stopping people from walking through and shouting abuse at us, but there were times where they were like laughing and joking with the far right, just like in the corner and not really paying attention to what we were protesting against, which was racism. So, do you know know what I'm sort of getting at? You know, the the apathy by Stoke Police on that day speaks volumes about how much they care about upholding the law and how much they care about upholding Mm -hmm. their their obligation to protect citizens. I mean, that's what they were there for, wasn't it? Uh, From my understanding, when they come to protest, they're meant to pretty much try and allow you to peacefully protest and to stop any, uh, well, people who show up with the intention not to uh, be a part of the protest or disrupt the protest out. Do you think the media represents protesters and their uh, cause accurately? No, not generally, no. I feel like... The thing about like the news and the media is it only ever catches snapshots of what's going on, either through photographs or bits of film. And of course, it's only from one angle, so we don't always see everything that's going on, uh, especially with tabloid newspapers which want to sensationalise or pander to a certain demographic. They have the power to really alter people's opinions or influence people's opinions. So, For, for example, all the negativity that was attached to the toppling of the Ed Colston statue in Bristol. For me, that's like, yeah, take down this statue. But for other people, they're more concerned about, you know, oh, damage to public property than they are about the cause, which I think says a lot about how the media have uh, presented that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it's really important that there's two different things to this. So one bit is that they were protesting, they were petitioning for the statue to be removed for 30 mm. years. So yeah. they were trying to go via the legal way. 
Right. That's right. The second bit is I remember I remember watching an interview that Femi Oluwole did on um I can't remember what the show is. It's got a blue logo. That's not helping anyone but who's on the show. <laughs> and um, he mentioned he was like um uh, someone on the show mentioned about the graffiti that um who's the person that graffitis places and he just leaves and it's supposed to be seen as work of art and Banksy. all that. Banksy. Um, Banksy. Yeah. They were talking about well, why is Banksy seen as a work of art and that's seen as that's illegal and mm. that's seen as normal and okay. Yeah. Um, but this is somehow not okay um, mm-hmm. when this is actually hurting people and yeah. a reminder of enslavement and a reminder of colonization and, and all the harm that this country has done internationally, yeah. globally. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, it was really interesting actually how this white woman just didn't. Um, just didn't agree she was just like no but but it's different and i highlighted her race for those listening and watching in particular because it's it's a privilege for you to be sitting there and be able to say these stuff without actually having an understanding experience of it so um so yeah i think it's absolutely um really important what you said about the statues we're completely Mm -hmm. against it as in society um but we do need to ask the question, which is if the policing bill was supposed to pass and become an act, how do you think it will change the face of activism, particularly protests? What is the future of it? I mean, as I think I mentioned earlier, like it will discourage people from attending protests. So the concern there is that we won't have quite as much solidarity on the streets and people won't feel as heard and might start to feel a bit hopeless about everything. Uh, there are other avenues that can be gone down. Like um, I've recently been learning about things like craftivism and laughtivism, which is finding sort of new creative techniques for sort of promoting activism that don't necessarily always involve protesting. Um, so I guess it's going to force us to think more creatively in some ways. But that um, sounds historically, interesting. yeah. What is, is that? Is, um, I'm a massive fan of comedy myself, so like laughtivism. It's something I've only just sort of learned about and thought, oh, this is perfect, I love this. Um, it's finding a way to, I guess, poke fun at the things that are going on in the government. Um, one way they thought of sort of protesting in their country without actively being out on the streets is getting little toys with little signs and just writing either satirical things or things that they were against in the government and just placing those around the town and the villages and whatnot. And that was a, still a way of getting messages across without actually having to actively be on the streets. So I guess, if anything, it's just going to yeah. force us to think outside the box a bit more if it does pass. But the, you know, the hope is that we don't have to resort to new... Well, yeah. I'm not going to say that we shouldn't try new things also, but um, you know, protest is effective, so I don't want that to be taken away. As, as a member of like the BLM Stoke, um, two of the most like prominent activism groups in the UK... Uh, not that there aren't others, a BLM and... Um, XR, Extinction Rebellion. That's it, that's it, it's Extinction Rebellion. Um, so those are the two um, most prominent, uh, two of the most prominent groups. And so we know that there's been conflicts in the past. And so how has that um, kind of, how has that worked in terms of this anti-protest bill um, with yourself being involved with BLM Stoke and, and creating well, that? What's quite ironic about this, you know, this bill is created to or is being pushed to silence protesters, but actually we've ended up being more solid than ever. Like we're reaching out to different activist groups like locally and because we're coming together, we've, you know, as I say, the strength in numbers. Ironically, it's almost gone against 
what they're trying to push. <laughs> Am I making sense? Like, I know I'm sort of saying words and I'm thinking, does this make any sense what I'm saying? Absolutely. I've noticed the unity across various um, activist groups um, and it's been amazing to see because I feel like now we're all seeing different stories and reasons for why we protest um, and make... It's it's learning things from each other. It's enlightening and like you said earlier, it's connecting us. Um, I actually didn't know about XR before all of this and I became more aware of XR due to the protest and that's yeah. been happening against the bill so yes to unity yeah. like <laughs> yeah. um, exactly absolutely and uh, we, we've seen the we've definitely seen in our meetings and conversations during uh, the bill about those kind of collaborations particularly with xr and blm and that's why i wanted to highlight that because i know there's a history there that um xr because XR and BLM aren't like centralised right so they're all different pockets of different organisations yeah. you might like one group um, because of the individual leading it you might not like another and and so it, it depends but often they've um, we know that XR have often been seen as um non-intersectional or having racist elements of their activism because they're not looking at it from a a global perspective and an intersectional perspective so it's great to see that there's been um more working together and and kind of those communities mending and having those building those relationships in a way that wasn't done before because they're recognizing that that needs to be done so yeah um yeah i mean even if people disagree on things i think collectively we all agree that we still have the right to free speech and the right to say what we need to say about the thing that we're passionate about or by pointing out an injustice. Just to kind of go on to that point of freedom of speech, I'm glad that you brought that up because I just wanted to move us on to something that's uh, also a bill going through the House of Parliament, which is, I think it's the freedom of speech bill or something to that effect, which ultimately means that um, it's for the freedom of speech uh, champions um, to, to be placed in in educational institutions. So in education, what do you think about the appointment of these freedom, free speech champions and the impact it could have on students' academic freedom, particularly teaching black history? It's important to note, sorry, before you answer that question, the purpose of the free speech champion was because they felt that um, it, they used statistics, for example, that people, um, I think it was like four out of 10 people who believed, uh, who who voted for or were for Brexit didn't feel like they could um, express those opinions in, in universities and etc. So that's the reason that the purpose behind this. I mean, I'm all for free speech and I think everyone has the right to their opinion. But I also feel like we should have critical thinking champions too. <laughs> Just so it you know, it reinforces the fact that yeah, you're right, you've got a right to your opinion, but you've also got to be able to back yourself up with facts and know what you're talking about and stuff like that. I mean, I'm constantly sort of criticizing myself in a way where I'm like, you know, does that make sense to blah 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 blah. That's that's kind of my two cents on the issue. I love that. I yeah, want to see no. that. I'm here for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Critical yeah. speech champions. I think that should should happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, critical thinking and like, I think encouraging people to be more self-aware as well and to build on interpersonal relationships because freedom of speech is, you know, it's fantastic. It's great. Everyone has the right to their opinion. 
but also not free of consequences of what you say, especially if you're saying something quite hurtful or offensive. One of the things I've realised is that activists, um, anti-racist activists in particular, have a really good, um, generally speaking, tend to have a better sense of self a sense of who they are because of the critical nature of anti-racism activism because you have to be so critical of everything that you've learned and everything you're on learning and every part of the language you're using and the 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 reactions that you have and the and all and your place in society and and other your family's place in society etc and your privileges and all of that so there's definitely that and that's not praised enough but yeah I just wanted to say um thank you so much for like being on this podcast we really enjoyed having you so for those who are listening um don't forget and what's your socials as well uh, if you'd like to follow blm for stoke we're a gr- there's a group on facebook um you can also follow sable on facebook it's just sable staffordshire association for black Lives equality um get in touch with us if you've got any questions or any requests we can send you a copy of our objectives don't forget to follow us individually i am at Gita, G-E-E-T-A underscore L-A-L underscore. And this is Daniil, D-A-N-E-I-L-L-E underscore D-U-H. Nailed it. Thank you for watching uh, or listening to Conversations in Society. And we will be back next week. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.